This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the hosting provider I use for devchat.tv. I also use it for my applications that manage the RSS feeds, scheduling, and sponsorships involved in delivering these shows. DigitalOcean is easy to use, has data centers all over the world, and provides terrific services including server hosting and object storage for delivering your web applications and assets quickly and easily. I use DigitalOcean because I love their interface. I get SSD storage for my servers, and their support replies quickly. So go check them out at DigitalOcean.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on our panel, we have Eric Berry. Hey! Mark Erickson. Hey, everyone. Josh Adams. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Paul Schoenfelder. Hey, guys. How's it going? All right. Well, before the show, Mark pointed out that you have a lot of pretty well-known packages and repositories on GitHub that people use. And we kind of, before the show, got into quite a bit of stuff about distillery. So let's start there and see where we wind up. Sure. Yeah, that sounds good to me. But before we do that, why don't you give us a brief introduction, who you are, where you work? Sure. Yeah. You know, as you said, I'm Paul Schoenfelder. Uh, I'm a senior, well, not anymore. I'm an architectural engineer at Dockyard. And I've worked at a variety of places since I came to the Elixir community. Um, I originally was a .NET developer for a really long time, for about like 10 years, um, and bounced around like Scala, Java projects, some F Sharp. was always kind of like searching for the ideal language, you know, that endless search that everybody is always in pursuit of, like the one tool to rule them all kind of thing. I remember seeing something posted, uh, I don't even remember where, I think it was an Erlang thread on Hacker News way back. Somebody mentioned Elixir and linked the website, so I went and checked it out. Saw stuff like hot upgrades and like the syntax and everything. So I started delving in and it just kind of sucked me right in. And ever since, you know, I've been just pretty much dedicating most of my open source time and, and free time towards working in the language and on projects associated with it. Um, I was able to pretty quickly actually find a place that was doing Erlang that also was interested in Elixir uh, to hire me. I, mean, I got to do it full-time pretty fast. And that helped a lot with you know, those libraries that you were talking about uh, because of being able to work on it full-time. I had real problems I was trying to solve, and so I was constantly trying to develop new tools. Uh, before I started working professionally, though, you know, the predecessor to Distiller EXRM was sort of like a my first real foray into a, a big tool. Um, that was spawned out of conversations I had in IOC about hot upgrades and how they worked and how you're supposed to use them. Because back then, you know, with Mix, hot upgrades are basically not a thing. You can do code reloading, right? You can reload a module and, and do code swapping, but it's not the same thing. Uh, I was really interested in the idea of upgrading a whole system. And so when I realized that releases were part of that, uh, I started doing the research to figure out how that all worked. Um, so I started writing that tool to automate the building of a release. And as part of that, dealing with hot upgrades, which required generating app up files. And that got me pretty deep into OTP internals way earlier than I think I would have otherwise gotten if I hadn't been interested in that initially. Timex was the other big one that I started with early on. Um, because I was really interested in daytime and there was a lack of that completely. Um, there was, it's actually 
born out of a tool written by uh, Alexis Schuller, um, who I think is maybe technically part of the core team. I don't know. He's been fairly absentee from the community for a while. I think he's had other things going on, but I know he's still actively working with Elixir. But he wrote a, a daytime library in Elixir that he had kind of gotten to a, a baseline point and then sort of let sit while he was working on other things. So I came to him and was like, hey, man, do you mind if I take this over and, and go places with it? And he was cool with handing over the repo and I just went with it from there. And so that was kind of the thing that took me quite a ways. I think most people were familiar with Timex before they were familiar with the XRM until releases became more and more the recommended way of deploying. So, yeah, that's kind of the quick and dirty on how I got to where I am today. I actually knew about you beforehand. I knew, I've known about your libraries for quite a while. And thank you for all your hard work on that. Um, That's awesome. One of the uh, points of frustration that I had, uh, and just to give you a background of me, I'm a, I'm, I'm kind of the, the token noob in the, in the group here. And I am uh, continuously learning how to develop and deploy Elixir applications. And the deployment side was really frustrating for me. Uh, and in fact, back, I think right before you posted this blog post, I was talking with the, um, in the Elixir uh, Slack group about how to do deployments outside of Heroku. And there was some conversations, and I think Brian Carterell has said that uh, you guys are working on something to basically make it so that deployment should be as simple as everything else. And um, you released this article called uh, a Deployment Tool Update February 2018. Yeah. And you go a little bit into that. How, how has that progressed, and where is the current – where are we at on the deployment story for, for Dockyard? Yeah, and that I probably should mention that, you know, Dockyard hired me uh, to basically focus my time on that. Um, I do have some client projects that I work on periodically, but most of my time is dedicated towards working on my open source projects, but primarily distillery. Um, that update article was sort of like the major shift in how I had approached sort of reinventing distillery moving forward with an eye towards, you know, moving this stuff into core. The idea is that we want Mix to sort of have first-class support for releases internally. So it requires both some changes to Mix and how things are built and run there, um, as well as sort of a migration path from distillery, right? I've had conversations with Jose about the nature of that, and we can maybe get more into why that hasn't happened yet. But where we're at today is... Everything that I discussed in that article is basically implemented. The one thing that's holding it back from sort of a full release right now is the question of runtime configuration and how to deal with that. And that's been a really big conversation in the community like the last couple of weeks, month, I guess. Um, you know, my plan for that, as discussed in that article and in my talks earlier this year, was based on the idea of basically making mixed config work with releases, adding more or less first-class support for that. There are some caveats to that, though, with the way that people use config.exs or mixed config today. Uh, It's mixing this idea of compile time and runtime configuration together. And that's mostly because mix sort of abstracts that way. There is no distinction, really, 
when working with Mix between compile time and runtime because you're running with the source code and, and you don't care whether a particular configuration option takes effect at compile time or runtime. Releases do care though, right? Because you're compiling, getting a bunch of beam files, and then the actual running of that those beam files happens at potentially on another machine or a later time. And you have a config file, but now some of those config options may not actually take, take effect if you change them. People do things like uh, execute git from within the config files to get like a, a short hash for a version number or something. You can, because it's arbitrary Elixir script, you can basically do whatever you want in there. And because of that, we can make a guarantee that those config files work both in your mixed project structure as well as in a release that's deployed arbitrarily somewhere where you might not have Git or anything else on that machine, you know, particularly in a Docker image. Because of that, we've been trying to figure out the right way to deal with configuration, right? Um, what steps need to be taken to make sure that that transition is relatively easy while also still being logical, right? Like getting us to the end state where we really want to be. And what is that end state? There's a lot of questions that have been asked and people have various ideas for, I do as well. And I don't know that there's any one right answer. They're all trade-offs based on what people care about. Um, what I baked into distillery, which is still in the master branch, but hasn't been released along with a few other changes is the mixed config support that I was talking about. So in theory, the, that is supported. And if you're willing to make the changes to your mixed config file uh, to strip out the things that maybe aren't going to work uh, in a release, say if you're invoking Git inside there to get a version number or something. Um, and there's some approaches for dealing with that. But if you are willing to take those steps, then maybe you're already happy with the, the world as seen by distillery at this point. But I don't think that's where we ultimately want to end up because we still have mixed config, which is sort of conflating these compile time and runtime concerns. So until the answer to that is really arrived at, and ultimately Jose is going to be the one to say, you know, blast a particular path. But I do think that we need some kind of answer there before I push distillery too hard, like whatever approach, because I want to build it in there trial it with the community. And then once we're happy with the way things look, we can then extract the parts of distillery that belong in core. Um, and distillery might continue on as like a, a tool that enhances the core tooling, provides some extra features that maybe uh, Jose and the core team don't want to support, but are nice to haves. Uh, or it may go away entirely if it's unnecessary. But that's kind of the vision moving forward. I'm really hoping to get like a final answer to that stuff this summer here in the next couple of months and start making progress towards getting releases into core. Theoretically, I could start working down that path now, but because of the question of configuration, some of the implementation stuff that needs to happen in mix could change in the way it needs to be done. So there's really not a whole lot of point in me doing that until we arrive at some sort of consensus there. Um, the other thing that, you know, I built into distillery that I believe strongly in is this idea of configuration providers, right? So I don't, I wrote another tool called conform a long time ago. 
Um, the idea is basically to provide a standard init style configuration file for ops teams. So if you're deploying Elixir applications as like a product of some kind, the config file probably shouldn't be Erlang terms or Elixir code. It should be something familiar to your standard sysadmin do. And because of that, we need tool, the configuration tooling to basically support arbitrary providers like that. Um, maybe you don't care about a custom file format, but maybe you want to fetch config from, say, etcd or console or something. This idea of pluggable providers, I think, is really key to the idea of making configuration easy for your own environment. Um, we still need tooling for like the compile time stuff, right? And I, I do think that config.exs makes a, a good place for that kind of thing. Um, you know, bake in your configuration parameters for building the application there, but then moving runtime configuration to something that's a little bit more pluggable um, and, and moving away from config, mixed config as the runtime configuration file. Um, some of that has been focusing on using code like your own application code to do the runtime configuration stuff, like whether that's reading from the environment or hitting a etcd endpoint or something. But there's some caveats to that that require support from the libraries you use. Uh, you, in order to configure dependencies that don't expose uh, configuration as parameters, then you you have to either take over the control of like starting those applications in in your own by including them. Um, or customizing the boot script. There's a couple of different ways of doing that. Um, libraries themselves need to expose something like a function or like an init style callback like Phoenix does. There's a bunch of different approaches there, but I think we need support for that configuration provider stuff natively in the tools, like in the release tooling or in Mix so that you can do configuration, runtime configuration, before the application has even started. So after everything's loaded, but before things start up. That way, if you do have libraries that you depend on that aren't doing things the right way, you can still configure them within the same mechanism that you configure everything else. And that's where a lot of the debate has centered, I think, is, is that part of it. Like, what do we do about the libraries that aren't particularly well-written in that regard? Um, so yeah, I <laughs> kind of went off on a spiel there, but I, I hope that sort of gives you an idea of, of where things are with distillery, with the core release tooling, um, and sort of the current debate there. Are there any dates behind this? Any goals that were, there's a, a, a line drawn in the sand saying we have to have consensus by X date? Um, no, and I... I don't think that we necessarily want there to be, I mean, it would be ideal, right, if we can make that decision yesterday. But I think trying to force a deadline like that is going to drive us towards maybe a solution that's not ideal just to get something yeah. out the door. Yeah. And we, as a community, have already evolved some processes and, and workarounds for the way configuration works today. So I'm not sure that it's a dire situation. It's not a good situation, but I would rather spend as much time as necessary to figure out the path forward, build the tooling the right way, uh, regardless of how long that may take. Now, I, 
believe that their core team would agree with me that we want to arrive at a solution soon. And I'm not sure how much further debate there is left to have, but we do need to kind of sort through the options, right? And figure out what we want to do. And that part of it, I'm not sure what the core team's view is on that. I haven't discussed with them in the last couple of weeks since a lot of these conversations have fleshed out on Twitter, on Elixir forum. But yeah, my view is that, you know, I had originally planned to get this core tooling built into Elixir and 1.7 was sort of what Jose and I talked about. Realistically, that's probably not going to happen. Probably be 1.8 at the earliest. Hmm. So that would be sometime this fall, I guess. But that's heavily dependent on how things go around configuration. So, so maybe the good news there is um, I don't I don't share the like that. I, I guess you actually mentioned there's not a dire need. Like right now, configuration just kind of works fine for me. I use replace OS bars and and just bake stuff into my containers. Yeah, and it it just works. Obviously, there's lots of other use cases, and being able to do something like watch configuration changes with a provider seems neat. Yeah, um, and I can't imagine how to do that with environment variables, but but still, uh, it's it's pretty yeah. pretty workable right now, for me at least. Yeah, and that's actually um, me and Chris Keithley have been doing a little bit talking about this uh, because we agree with each other on a lot of the configuration questions, and he started working on a little library called Vapor um, as sort of an experiment, right, of implementing what he thought would be the right path forward, maybe. And one of the ideas behind it was being able to write watchers, basically, for configuration, as well as having different providers. Um, And watchers would be simple, right? Like, even for environment variables, if you just pull, like, every couple seconds or something, check all the environment variables, to see if any of the values change, like you theoretically could do it that way. Um, yeah, maybe, I sort of realized that right after I said that. <laughs> but still, right, you'd have to know what all those environment variables are. So there's somewhat of like a, a burden on the user to define what all those are that need to be watched. But if that's something, you know, that is not too much to ask, which I'm not sure that it is too much to ask, it would definitely be doable. The other side of that, though, is that Configuration may change, but the application and libraries that you use have to be built in such a way that they can react to those changes in a meaningful way. For example, if you're listening on port 80 and you want to change that to port 4000, uh, if you're using like Cowboy or something, you it needs to know how to react to that. And there's actually a mechanism baked into OTP for applications to hook into to react to configuration changes. This is actually used by the hot upgrade process. Um, in the application callback module, there's actually a, a non-implemented callback there called config change that receives uh, added, changed, removed configurations, three parameters. And so you can look through those to see, okay, well, the port I'm supposed to listen to changed, so I'm going to go tell the supervisor that's holding onto the listen socket to restart that child so that it picks up the new port and starts listening on the new port. Um, I think that because we have those mechanisms already baked in OHCP, we want to leverage them, but we have to do some education around that. It's not quite as simple as just listening to configuration changes. We also have to know how to react to them. And that, that part of it's more complicated, I think. 
But still, if we documented it, showed people examples of how to do that, uh, and if libraries start to conform to some of these standards, it will become much, much easier for people to, to deal with that. And it will make configuration feel much more natural. As part, it's basically part of your application, right? You want to be able to react to that same way you react to like failure or uh, changing requirements like scaling. And uh, we've kind of ignored it up until this point, unfortunately. So I am really excited about this discussion of configuration. Um, one of the things that uh, like I work in a PCI compliant environment. And one of the things that we want is really control over those Docker images so that you, you're building the Docker image and you're passing that same compiled Docker image through test stage and then to production. So yeah. It just needs to pick up the environment variables that are passed into it all along the way to change its behavior and to say, oh, I'm running in production mode now. Yeah. So is that something that we should be easily able to do right now? Uh, yeah. I mean, I was doing basically the same thing with Kubernetes. Um, like, it's, I guess it's been like two years now ago uh, where, you know, we would bake an image in dev run it through our dev tests and then push that or like promote it to staging. It would pick up the environment variables there for the staging environment. And we do our smoke testing, our integration testing there. And then we promote the entire staging environment at one time to production. Right. Using like a blue green deployment style. And that worked pretty well. I think the Docker situation is maybe easier from a configuration standpoint with releases because you're already reliant on environment variables as the primary configuration mechanism. And that, you know, with Replaceo, as far as like Josh mentioned, you know, that just kind of works today. It's not perfect because if you have configuration values that need to be a particular type, that's where you run into some pain. Um, but if you're writing your application code to deal with that, it's not been too much of a problem, I don't think. I know that I personally never had too much of a an issue with it. But I've also worked in environments where we weren't using Docker. Uh, we were, you know, deploying like a product to customer environments. And in that case, that doesn't work very well. You can't really use exported environment variables too much, except for as maybe like overrides for testing and that kind of thing. Um, there we're actually using conform um, and relying on like that init style config. And that was much more painful, um, partially because the way Conform was written wasn't ideal because I wrote it, you know, when I was still pretty new to Elixir. But um, without support for some sort of explicit provider system, it always felt like a bit of a, you know, second-class citizen to everything else. Uh, it worked, but it wasn't great. And that's where... I think people are typically running into a lot of problems is either that or just the transition from dev to prod, like the first time they start using releases, not knowing all the caveats um, of how the configuration works between running under mix and running in releases. Uh, and that's, I think, sort of the primary area of focus at this point is trying to figure out how to make that not painful anymore. Um, you know, the big problem is when you move from using config.exs as like your compi like combined compile time, runtime config file, when moving to releases, you suddenly have to make that much more static because it's going to be converted to a sys.config file. 
just Erlang terms, right? And that's all static. Um, and you have to move all of your dynamic code, like your dynamic runtime configuration stuff into your application. And in some cases, that's a pretty simple step. They haven't maybe baked a whole lot of configuration into config.exs yet. And so making that transition is not as painful. But if you have a legacy application that's been around for a while and now you're starting to look at using releases, that can be a pretty big step um, where you're running into a lot of problems and it just feels really painful. And a lot of the pain that people have approached me about is in that regard. And that's where yeah. I think a lot of the improvement needs to happen. Yeah, also a good sort of change to your workflow as a developer might be, hey, start doing continuous deployment very early because it'll it'll yeah. suck immediately, it'll suck early on, but but then you've solved all the problems before they pile up. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm a hundred percent a believer in continuous deployment, continuous integration. You know, there's it's a gradient, right? Like it's not all or nothing. You can do some degree of that. But the idea of deploying as soon as possible, as often as possible, I think really makes a lot of sense because yeah it it sort of breaks down the times where you run into problems instead of stacking up a whole bunch of issues and not discovering them until you're trying to push out this huge release uh, you know you're constantly seeing the effects of the changes you make and you're able to fix them in small pieces and it doesn't feel nearly as gross as it does otherwise but you know part of it feeling gross or broken in the first place is because the tooling is just still relatively immature when it comes to this particular aspect of deployment. And I, I really want us to fix that. I've been preaching the releases thing now for feels like a long time, four or five years, I guess. And I think we're finally getting to the point where, you know, the core team has the bandwidth and the community has started to push back enough where it's become sort of front and center as an issue. And it's, sort of unfortunate how long it's taken to get to this point because it probably would have been a lot easier to deal with these changes earlier on in the language's life. And now we're kind of at a point where it's much more difficult to make big sweeping changes. I mean, I still remember before Elixir went 1.0, some of those painful <laughs> syntax changes that happened, um, you know, like the deprecation of records and things like that, that really just were stirring the pot of hate. <laughs> there are a lot of people that were not happy about that. And maintenance was a real nightmare. That would have been the perfect sweet spot for dealing with this. But the problem is we just didn't know, you know, that what the nature of the problem was and what the options were for dealing with it. I hadn't done nearly as much delving into OTPs internals as I have in the last, you know, year or two. And I really regret that now. I wish I could have known about some of these things and been able to to push that harder earlier on, but we are how where we are now. How dare you? <laughs> it's all my fault. <laughs> I mean, to a certain extent, I, I do wonder, like, what would have happened if I had never built, you know, EXRM or distillery? Like, would releases have become a thing or would that have somebody else would have just discovered it right around the same time and built the same tools, you know? Because I wonder if this issue would have come up at all or if it's partially because of the fact that we realize now that releases are sort of the ideal way to deploy applications. And because this wasn't discovered early on, you know, now we're having to deal with the pain points. I, I blame Heroku. 
Yeah. <laughs> Heroku made it really easy to deploy with just, you know, mix and not use releases. And so, yeah, you're right. And to a certain extent, it's definitely dragged out how many people aren't using releases. And because of that, we haven't had to really confront this issue until more and more production users not using something like Heroku uh, came on board and were like, wait, this is kind of whack. Why are we having to fight with the configuration system at this point? I thought this language is stable and, and things like that. So, yeah, I, I, I love Heroku. It's really easy to use, but I am a little bit angry that it has sort of dragged this issue out longer than maybe it needed to be. And it's not Heroku's fault. It's deploying with source code that's the problem. Not enough people, I think, uh, on the development side maybe have worked in ops, and so the idea of deploying compilers to your production host doesn't scream like no to them. But yeah, I think I think probably that comes a lot from the sort of the Ruby history of a lot of Elixir developers as well. Like, what's yeah, wrong with deploying source code? Right, when you have no choice but to do that, yeah. Um, and I I came from the other direction where you were never deploying source code. It was always some build artifact. And I worked in ops for a long time too. So I developed a lot of those sort of like reactions to the idea of deploying all these different tools and, and executables to your production host. When you're trying to minimize the surface area for an attack, you really don't want any of that stuff. But when you come from an environment where you have no choice but to deploy all your compilers and, and your executable like Ruby or uh, Node.js, there's no reason to fight against it. You, that's just kind of where you have to go. Yeah, just put but, GCC on there. Done. Yeah. <laughs> well, I came from that background. And in fact, um, my primary application for the company that I'm with, uh, CodeFund, is written in Elixir. It's completely open source. But we're hosting currently on Heroku. And the reason we're hosting on Heroku is because I have a really hard time with DevOps. I have a really hard time getting these things deployed. Now, I've gone through the tutorials that I've seen so far, and it seems so involved where I've just been a little pampered baby with Heroku with my Rails apps. And I'm like, ah, I just want to I want to do one command and push a button and everything works great for me. And, uh, yeah. and so All that's, the work's been done in the, in the build pack. So you don't really exactly. have to think about it. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why we're on it. But now I'm already feeling the pain of that. Like we can't run, uh, we can't really run OTP processes as far, in my understanding, we can't run those. They, they reset every day. We're, we're having to use Redis to do our background jobs instead of mm -hmm. using um, just OTP and all that stuff. So definitely some pain involved in there. But, and, and I, if I understand right, it's actually more expensive to host there than it would be for example, on AWS or DigitalOcean or, or elsewhere, Absolutely. or Linode um, with, uh, with your tooling. Well, I mean, Heroku is built on AWS last I checked. And I mean, they obviously are having to charge a premium on top of that in order to make exactly it, right? Uh, but they do make things extremely convenient. The problem is that Erlang and Elixir are not necessarily a great fit for like Heroku's hosting profile, right? This idea of single-threaded applications that can be restarted arbitrarily. You know, with Erlang and Elixir, we're using long-running processes. We're clustering. Um, 
you may want to do hot upgrades. Like none of that works in Heroku's environment as far as I'm aware. Um, yeah, I feel, I feel like people hobble themselves because they started off doing Heroku deployment and now they just don't get half of Elixir's runtime benefits. Yeah, exactly. It, it I would I would think that if you were using Elixir and Erlang and you couldn't use any of those things, you'd really be asking yourself, like, why? What is the point? I mean, there's some benefits to the language beyond just those things, of course. It's still a pleasant language to work with. But yeah. you would definitely be like, wait, why are people evangelizing this so much? I don't get it. And it's not until you really are able to leverage all those tools that you start to really see the power of the platform. Um, and I, I think deploying to something like AWS or DigitalOcean or whatever, and at least starting there, getting a, a feel of how the tools work, like how does it work clustering a bunch of nodes together and, and how does the distribution processes and all that stuff work? Like how do you deal with state in a cluster? Those are some hard questions that a lot of people I don't think have even started to confront yet, which is like why Swarm, that one tool that I wrote, I think became such a big deal is because not very many people were actually doing distributed state or clustering. Um, and because I happened to be one of the first ones to push out a tool to try and make that easier, it just sort of exploded a little bit. Um, but yeah, Swarm I'm is not a great tool for most use cases. It was very tailored towards my specific use case. Yeah, I'm, I'm using Swarm right now, and it's uh, it's fantastic, and it works for my use case very well. And also LibCluster, awesome. LibCluster uh, inside of a Kubernetes cluster is just ridiculous. It's so yeah, good. Yeah, it works really well. I was super happy with that. And I mean, it's super simple. It is a dead simple tool. Uh, but it's nice to have that there. I wish it was baked into the language somehow, but you know, whatever, it's not a big deal. At least we have a library out there now that acts as a decent base for that. Uh, so being able to use it with Kubernetes or Rancher, uh, AWS, like EC2 or ECS. I'm using it with multicast and it's, uh, oh, nice. it's working, it's nice. Yeah, that one was my first experiment. I wanted to see if I could do a gossip protocol to, to get a cluster formed. Um, it was definitely the most fun one to write, but that, that one's also a really difficult one because you're never, never quite sure how multicast UDP will be dealt with inside of a network, right? Uh, I think AWS in particular is a place where the gossip maybe doesn't work great, but uh, I haven't tried it there, so maybe it does. We're using it inside of a, uh, a VPN. It's it's all right. It's a VPN of machines in the same location, so we're not like spreading things out. Yeah, nice. Well, that's great to hear that it's worked well for you for sure. And I I feel like the more people start to do clustering, the more and better tools will be created and start to show up. I know uh, Chris Keithley was working on a Raft implementation, which is really critical for the idea of doing distributed state, uh, where eventual consistency is not ideal or not an option, right? When you need strong consistency. Uh, I don't know if that's been finalized or not. I haven't been able to pay a whole lot of attention to that, but um, it's definitely one to keep your eye on. And I know there's a few Raft implementations um, or maybe just Paxos implementations in general, but um, his is one that I would probably put my way behind if I was gonna work on one right now. Um, and then you've got like React Core, React Ensemble, and there's a lot more 
momentum behind those tools now, uh, particularly since Basho went under and it's sort of been picked up by Bet365. At least I think that was who picked it up. I don't remember exactly. What are the other platforms that I uh, used or toolings I've used um, to kind of get away from Heroku? Not that they're a bad solution, but one uh, one of the tools I used is called Nanobox. Have you oh, yeah. looked at that or used that at all? Um, I haven't used it. Uh, the guy who originally helped me develop the app up generator, uh, Tyler Treat, uh, or no, sorry, that's the wrong Tyler. <laughs> Hold on a second. By the way, he's a really good person to follow on Twitter if you're into distributed systems. What's uh, his Twitter handle? I think it's just Tyler Treat. And Tyler Flint is the Tyler yes. Nanobox. That is the name I was trying to remember. Yeah, Tyler Flint. Um, he's the guy that gave me the initial shell script, or was it Erlang code? Yeah, it was Erlang code uh, to do uh, hot upgrades. It's evolved quite a bit since then, but he really planted the seed and walked me through like the the problems and like how you try and work around them. Um, and so the app up generator and, and EXRM and distillery is ultimately based on his work. And I'm eternally grateful to him for that. But he uh, told me about Nanobox when they were starting to work on it. And I've been meaning to spend some time checking it out, but from what I've heard, it works great. Definitely much more tailored towards Erlang Elixir applications. I think you can do clustering and all that jazz. Definitely uh, worth giving a look, I would think. You know, if you're considering something like Heroku, I would check out Nanobox first. So what's it like working with uh, the team over at Dockyard? And the reason I ask is because I've been kind of a Dockyard fanboy for a long time. Following Cartarella and yeah. You know, working here is definitely been the best job that I've had so far. Um, you know, we're all remote. We're not working out of our office or anything like that, but it's truly a team that functions, functions well remotely, um, which is the first that I've been on. Well, second that I've been on that worked pretty well remotely, but by far the best. Um, and I'm working with people that uh, know what they're doing. Like, uh, I feel like, I can talk to them and learn from them. And I, I tell you, it, it's impossible to beat that. Um, when you're working with people that you kind of have this constant cycle of, of learning and teaching and back and forth, uh, it really helps you grow as a developer, learn new things, uh, expand your knowledge base. We're working on a variety of projects. So, you know, we get to learn little bits of domain knowledge from all these different areas. And it's really cool. Um, you know, there's Chris working there, Chris McCord. Uh, you know, Brian is pretty influential on Twitter and, and just in general, he's been supporting Elixir Conf and a variety of these other conferences, which is huge, right? Plus, you know, they ultimately hired me to work on open source, which in and of itself is a huge contribution to the community. In my right, mind. exactly. Uh, so rare to to have a company that invests significant funds into supporting just open source. They aren't, you know, Dockyard didn't hire me on the condition of like, okay, you can work on your stuff, but you have to do it in a way that benefits us. It's understood that implicitly by working on the things I'm working on, Dockyard will benefit, right? But so will everyone else. Right. And 
I really can't <laughs> emphasize enough how much that means to me because I get to work on what I'm most passionate about, which is super lucky. I'm not sure that I would have ever had this opportunity if I hadn't, you know, gotten lucky basically. And the other guys I work with are great. You know, they get to spend some time working on open source as well. It's not like I'm the only one, you know, Chris and me are, are serving the same boat where most of our time is spent working on our open source projects, but everybody here gets uh, their Fridays to work on open source or, you know, writing blog posts, that kind of thing. So there's been a real emphasis on contributing back to the community as much as possible. It's really cool. Very, very cool. I would definitely recommend any other companies that are, you know, capable of doing this, please do it because the more bandwidth we can get behind uh, open source libraries and stuff in the, in the community, the better. When you have people that can dedicate their full time towards implementing things like Raft or uh, Distillery or Phoenix or whatever, everybody benefits because you have a cohesive vision behind these tools instead of somebody putting in, you know, an hour here, hour there, uh, in their spare time where they just can't keep up with the flow of change and the maintenance. It can be really difficult if you're a solo maintainer. Uh, I can't even keep up with some of my libraries anymore, which I feel bad about, but you know, ultimately you just have to prioritize those which are most important. Um, and Speaking of which, if anybody is interested in taking over one of my libraries, feel free to ask. Um, I am very much willing to donate uh, my time to handing the, some of them off. Uh, but, you know, in, in the sense that by being able to invest more in the tools and in sort of like a full-time capacity, I really think we stand to benefit. I hope more people follow that example. I know it's difficult. It's really hard to make that argument, especially in the larger organizations, um, to have somebody that's basically like not working on the product. But I really think ultimately your company benefits from being able to have somebody focused on that. Because not only are they contributing to the community, but they're aware of what's going on in the community, following the trends, seeing what's going on. They can influence other libraries to help add features that are maybe useful. I mean, there's a whole lot of knock-on effects that I think are sort of never spoken about. Yeah, um, I've been I've been pretty involved in the uh, open source sustainability effort uh, with code sponsor and code fund, and I, I have found that um, burnout is a very very real thing, especially when you build something initially that you use, you built it for yourself, or you built it for whatever purpose, but. After a while, if it, if it gains a certain amount of popularity, the demands far outweigh the rewards that were initially brought. Oh, uh, absolutely. So, yeah. So, I mean, there, there are a bunch of different ways that open source can become more sustainable. Um, I am going to put in there, though, that um, this year in October, end of October, there's a, a sustained conf in London. And I think it's either it's, – it's really cheap – but essentially, it's just a bunch of people getting together to discuss this problem of making it so that we can have ongoing sustainable open source uh, and what we can do to make that happen, whether it be through funding, whether it be through licensing, whether it be through all, you know, this or that. Yeah. But what can we do collectively as, as a developer pool to make it so that we can 
um, enable people like you and 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 those uh, developers who are working their butts off to provide an, an insanely incredible uh, tooling for everybody else to be able to justify that work in one way or another, to be able to continue that work without hitting that burnout point. I really think that people are not like aware, I guess, of the idea of just how easily burnout can affect you. Um, I've gone through burnout cycles almost every year uh, for the last five years. I, what usually happens is like I'll reach a point where I'm just flooded and I just shut off completely for a month. This is the, the thing I learned is I have to just stop doing anything for like a month because if I don't, I'd stop being productive at all. And then it infects over time. Like you would just slow down until it's just a crawl. And instead of it being a month off, it might be six to eight months before you start actually feeling back into it again. So it's important to take time off. But for me, the, the most valuable thing has been people that are willing to just contribute their time to answer questions on issue trackers or, you know, push a PR or otherwise contribute somehow, right? Um, that's been huge for me and being able to help offload some of that work uh, to help me feel more motivated. Even just hearing comments, like when people at conferences or on Twitter or whatever, just say like, hey man, been using your stuff. You know, I love it. It works great for me. Thanks so much. You know, it's a lot of people, if a tool works well, they just are like, great, cool, it worked. And they don't realize that maybe the person that wrote that thing is like dealing with a flood of issues from all the people that it didn't work perfectly for and are starting to wonder like, well, does anybody even like this thing? Why am, why am I working on it? And a lot of that feedback that I've gotten has been really helpful and sort of, you know, continuing to push me along and those points where you start to feel a little bit low. But burnout isn't always about just getting good feedback or bad feedback. Sometimes it's just you take on too much and you don't really realize it until it's basically too late. Um, and that's sort of the burnout cycle for me is I usually just start working on too much. I get really excited about two or three or four different things at the same time. I start overextending myself to work on all those things. And eventually you realize like, man, I just don't have the energy for this. Like if I am not constantly paying attention or, you know, responding to issues or involved in conversations, I'm going to miss out. And so it's that fear of missing out thing that really drives you to push way more of yourself into it than you should. And I think once you reach that point, it's really easy to just sort of hit a point where you kind of like freak out a little bit, you know? And so focusing on one thing or maybe even, you know, two things to be active on, to pay attention to, I think is sort of the sweet spot for an individual, right? If you're working with a team of people, maybe you can afford to be a little bit more split, but even then, like I was saying, you want to be involved in conversations and aware of kind of the sentiments and attitudes of the community that you're working with. Um, and that takes time. Like all of those pieces add up pretty fast. And so I've tried to step more and more away from trying to split my brain that many directions at the same time and just focus on a couple things. Um, and I, I feel like if people are struggling with burnout, reevaluate 
what you're spending your time on, like reprioritize, pick one of those things or two of those things and back away from the rest. And you're not going to miss out necessarily. Like you'll miss out on maybe some of the decisions that are made or some of the conversations where your opinion isn't heard. That's okay. You know, you can always come back to it. The one major burnout I had, I disappeared for like nine months. I didn't do anything Elixir related. I just let EXRM and Timex and all those libraries just sit and rot because I couldn't care anymore. It was just too much. But when I came back to it, I was super excited about all of it again. I was able to dive back in and put everything into it. But I was much more careful about listening to myself, right? Like listening to my body, my brain, make sure that I wasn't pushing too hard on it. So hopefully that experience is helpful to other people who may be new to open source or considering contributing, but are worried about that. You know, it's just uh, something you have to be aware of when you're when you're working on open source maintenance or just work in general, right? Like it doesn't have to be open source. It could be anything, but uh, yeah. (laughs) Well, I think one of the things that's unique is, is that your, your primary customer as a library developer is the developer community. Right. Right. And, and so I guess your feedback mechanism really is like an issue tracker for the most part. Yeah. And so that's like almost negative feedback, right? It's like, (laughs) Yeah, by definition, the only feedback you get is how your stuff is wrong, you know, or broken. The best yeah. is when you get just a pile on of, of thumbs ups. Like, yes, in fact, this is, <laughs> yeah. you, you did bad here. I agree. Right. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Uh, you don't even get answers. You just get a bunch of thumbs up. And you're like, oh man, I really messed this one up. Yeah, well, it's such well thought out feedback too, right? Because a thumbs up takes people all of two seconds to click. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you don't know exactly what they're, thumbing up either you know the comment is not super simple you're like wait which part of this are you agreeing with all of it okay uh and yeah i mean i typically only use the like reaction stuff on github as sort of a signal of like okay well more than one person is seeing this problem but i try not to i try not to let any one issue ever overwhelm me or bother me too much like if i know that it's a real big problem and affecting a ton of people then yeah i'll probably set aside whatever else i'm doing to help deal with that but for the most part after so many years of working on open source projects like you get real aware of just how much you can push back a little bit be like okay you can wait for me to fix this unless you're willing to put in the work and do a pr yourself like I love helping people. Um, you know, if people send me emails or whatever, or reach out on Twitter, like I'll do my best to help. But if people aren't willing to take the time to do, like either work with me one-on-one, like a chat conversation or something, or um, give me a lot of feedback and an issue, like I will, I will wait, make them wait as long as I need to wait because I'm not going to burn myself out trying to help people who are not willing to put in the effort on their end. And that's one thing that I think is really key with being a maintainer is you want to be like the nice maintainer, open, friendly and everything like that. But you have to be willing to also push back a little bit, be willing to make people wait if you can't, if you don't have the bandwidth or they're not giving enough information. I don't think it's ever fair to be rude to people. So I try and avoid ever doing that. But I don't think it's rude either to be like, okay, well, you're not giving me enough information. So I'm going to close this 
you know, reopen it if you can provide all these things or whatever. Um, Jose's really aggressive about that. Well, the core team probably in general on the Elixir tracker, you'll notice it's super clean. Has only like 15 issues open at a time or something like that. And it's because he is on the ball about closing issues that are missing information or not on point or not on a topic, or if there's a better place to talk about it, he pushes them there. And that's part of, I think, why Elixir has been so successful, you know, under a very small core team with so many people using it is they're very aggressive about making sure that that pipeline is high quality. And so if you're working on an open source project, you have to be willing to be really aggressive about that in order to prevent yourself from logging into GitHub and be like, wow, I have 450 issues, you know, that are open on my repo. I'm just not even going to bother. What's the point? I can't get through 450 things. You have to be willing to be like, okay, well, I'm closing everything that's older than three months. And if they care enough about it, they'll reopen it. You know, that, that kind of behavior. If you're, if you're feeling overwhelmed, you have to be willing to do that. Uh, or asking for help even. And like, hey, if you're looking at this repo and you're running into issues and you're at all interested in helping out, I'll give you commit bit, whatever. Just please, you know, reach out, let me know. Um, we can work on this together. It seems like a lot of people are willing to contribute PRs to projects, but it's much less common that people are like, hey, I'm actually interested in working with you on this. Distillery till, still to this day is mostly a solo project. Like people contribute PRs all the time, um, but nobody's asked to like be a part of, you know, working with me side by side on it or any of the other libraries that matter. And I think that's probably common of everybody in the community, not just myself. Um, and it's definitely not that like I earned it or something like that. I don't, I don't want to come across that way, but uh, I do think that people are maybe afraid of asking those questions, you know? Um, I do think there's a bit of a path, right? Like you want to have people working with you on projects that, have established themselves as like being able to do good work, uh, whether that's answering questions on the on the repo or opening up some PRs and working through them with you. Once you've done that once or twice, like people will build trust pretty quick. I'm willing to, you know, work with people that I've seen produce that kind of quality work uh, because I need that help. And I know that everybody else that's working on open source and the community does as well. So as much as possible, I'd try and encourage people to don't be afraid of that. You know, that's another big thing that can help with burnout. If you have somebody else working on a project with you, you know, if you have somebody that you can turn to briefly to kind of take over, that's great. I've seen um, some, some pretty good suggestions on, on sort of handling that. Uh, my, one of my buddies is Phil Arndt from the Ruby community and, and he's pretty, pretty great about anytime somebody comes in and like is, you know, working, he, he maintains a bajillion repositories. And anytime somebody's coming in and has kind of a, hey, I here's a PR and I like it, or even even it's an issue, he'll like kind of try to shepherd them into, hey, you want you want commit bit on this? Um, no, because nice. because if you encourage that, then eventually, like I, I learned that from him and I had a, a little just random hackathon thing I did for Ruby to do a Ruby inside of IPython. And yeah. I wasn't going to work on it after those two days. And some people came in with some pull requests and I said, hey, why don't you just like take it? And turns out now it's a thing, and it, it wouldn't have continued cool. to be a thing under me. I wouldn't I wouldn't have done anything with it. It was just a fun project. But um, so yeah. I really am a am a big fan of the strategy of just just hand out commit bits like candy, 
if anyone That's shows really even even a minor interest. Yeah, I've never considered trying that approach, but that is that is really interesting. I imagine that works pretty well in practice. I mean, sometimes it could backfire, right? But I think as long as you're keeping an eye maybe on the repository or like have it cloned somewhere, even if somebody, you know, abuses that privilege and, and ruins things, you know, you can always potentially reclaim it, I guess. Yeah, it's, but. it's kind of inversion control. You could always, yeah, kick stuff back. But uh, I haven't actually seen that. Like pretty much all I've seen when people will take that strategy is stuff gets better and the maintainer's workload is lessened. Yeah. I think uh, at some point, can you delegate uh, hex permissions to publish packages now? I don't know if that's a thing yet. Uh, having like a you know team of people that can push to hex, or is it still just like the owner of the package? I don't know. Maybe it, you I feel like Eric. Know. I feel like Eric would know. Not not yeah. Eric. <laughs> yeah, I do not know that. I should ask because I think that would be a, a huge help. Like one of the problems. Uh, with handing off a commitment now even is that they ultimately will still depend on you to push the package. Um, not too long ago, I actually handed off most of the active maintainership of uh, XIRC, that IRC client library that was my first Elixir project um, to someone. And they've been doing an excellent job with it, but I still have to push the hex um, which isn't too much of a problem. I just tell them like, hey, send me I forgot email. that was yours. That was where I yeah, that was. Yeah, I uh, forgot that was your project. Project that that was the one where I learned that uh, Slack's IRC bridge was was very broken. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I forgot that you and I were dealing with a little bit of that. Yeah, that project is a fun one. I don't know. It's not particularly well structured at this point. Like I know it's evolving, getting better, but that was my first kind of OTP ish style project, and. Uh, it was funny how long it ended up sticking around. I thought it would be a throwaway project, you know, like this thing that you just kind of work on as sort of an experiment to get familiar with the language and some of the features, and then nobody's ever going to use it, and it just kind of disappears. But it was, again, one of those things where it just happened to be like one of the first that was around, and so people started using it, and it just kind of was stuck around all this time. Yeah, IRC is sneaky that way, and that so many people still use it, even though you kind yeah. of don't get that feeling ever. Yeah, it's... Even like I still am heavily dependent on IRC over Slack for most of my like community engagement stuff, but uh, I have started using Slack a little bit more. But it's just so heavyweight on my machine that I try and run it as uh, the least as possible. Well, that's why they're coming out with sixteen core machines. Yeah, right. At least fifteen of those cores for Slack, and then one for everything else that you need to do. You got to have Adam on one of them. <laughs> yeah. It's been, uh, it's been fun though to watch the evolution of projects like XRC and some of the other really old ones through all the language changes, all the evolutions of the tools and everything. Uh, particularly for me, just watching how XRC has changed over time. I think if you went back through all the changes, uh, both Timex and EXR, uh, XRC would probably have sort of a record of, of the changes that happen in the language, you know, like syntax changes or the deprecation of records and things like that. I know XRC used records, I think, really early on. Um, Timex did for sure. Timex is probably the worst, man. Some of the, the changes there were so brutal to deal with. Yep, I used records extensively before they 
went away. Do you remember that, oh man, I feel like it was a rethink DB driver or something like that, that really abused uh, some of the early record syntax to basically let you do the JavaScript style chaining of function calls to build no, queries. I, I don't, but I, I did that exactly once and I deeply regretted <laughs> it later. Yeah, I was. I actually took over maintainership of that project from the owner because I was like, okay, I want to use RethinkDB and I like the sort of this, you know, chained pipeline style for building queries. I think this was even before Ecto was a thing. Um, but then right shortly after that, the record deprecation stuff changed. Um, and that library was unfixable. There was just no way <laughs> you had to basically start from scratch. Uh, and so that I ultimately ended up abandoning that. But yeah, there were a few pretty brutal changes in the in life of Elixir. So on a, uh, on a minor off-topic question. Uh, do you have, so like, you know, the chaining, we, we're going to say monads is, is somehow sure. related. Uh, so do you have any libraries that you use to handle kind of like the sort of two tuples, okay, or two tuples uh, in sort of a monadic style? Uh, uh, are you aware of any that are any good? I, I played with one once and I didn't like the type specs and I, I kind of abandoned it and just decided I was going to suffer through. I played around with one. I can't remember what the name of it was. Maybe it's just okay or something like that, but yeah, I, especially with the addition of things like with, I just no longer feel the need uh, to try and hide those things. I prefer a little bit more of an explicit approach, even if it's a little bit more verbose. Uh, but with really simplifies a lot of that. It's not quite the yeah, same, it's fair. Right? but it's it's pretty similar in the sense that you know if one of the steps fails, it just returns early, basically. It, at least the early, uh, the initial version of with wasn't ideal because it didn't have like the else block that you could do pattern matching on. But now that that's there, I'm not sure that uh, there'd be any library that would obscure that in a meaningful way that I'd really want to get rid of it. I know in one project, uh, I wrote like a macro to basically handle creating the okay and error tuples. So instead of building the tuple by hand, you just like write okay exclamation mark and then like whatever the second element was going to be. But again, it's one of those things where new people come in on the project and they're like, well, what, what is this? Now I have to go find out what this macro definition is. And I guess that was one of the earlier things where I realized, okay, maybe I shouldn't go so macro heavy and instead favor being a little bit more explicit. It just makes it easier to come in as a, a newbie to Elixir or a new person to the project and just understand the code without having to go delve through a bunch of macro implementations to figure out what's going on. Yeah, I'm, I'm mostly trying to uh, do a little more sort of modeling at the at the type level and yeah. feel better about, about my signatures. And, and that's kind of what was driving my desire for this, but I still haven't found what I like. Yeah, I am 100% on board with you there. I experiment with so many different little things to try and make the idea of typing somewhat more real in Elixir. Dialyzer is great, but it's obviously got some pretty heavy flaws um, from a usability standpoint. And I'm really looking forward to somebody trying to build like a gradual typing system or something for Elixir. I know there's been somebody who's doing some work on that for Erlang um, that they just spoke at uh, Codebeam in Stockholm about I haven't watched the talk yet, but I've got it bookmarked. But um, it made me realize, like, hey, if they can do it in Erlang, they can probably do it in Elixir. 
And that would be really interesting uh, because I came primarily from strongly typed languages and I still deep in my heart prefer that over the dynamically typed languages. But uh, Elixir for me has enough wins that I don't care. <laughs> I'm willing to kind of abandon that uh, to get everything else I get with Elixir and Erlang. But yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I just would love to figure out how to layer on stronger yeah. types and get extra wins. Yeah, if there was a way to do that with the macro system somehow, or just, I don't know, a library to add on some sort of gradual typing pass uh, when you do the compilation, any of those things would be enough for me, I think, to at least give me a little bit more faith that when I'm making changes, I'm not breaking things. Because hands down, the thing that I mess up most often is making refactoring somewhere and subtly changing like the return type of a function or something like that. Yep. And, and uh, using dialyzer more heavily has helped to some degree in that, but it sometimes you forget to annotate functions, right? And it, it will sometimes work with that. But if you're doing a lot of dynamic stuff, like dynamically constructing, constructing function calls, basically throw all of that out the window. You know? Yeah, my, my problems with dialyzer are I can't actually run it and make it fail a build because I have libraries that it just won't work. Right. With. Yeah. Like once you fold one of those in, you basically lose that tool. Uh, so I run, I run it and I look at the report occasionally and that's not as good. Yeah, I definitely had lots of contributions from people fixing like type specs and stuff in my projects. And I'm always accepting those PRs because, you know, like you say, if your library doesn't uh, use type specs or, you know, has some problems internally that the author is unaware of, then pretty much you throw away your dialyzer check and your build. Um, I know it, yeah, the, wor the worst I found is just when they're wrong, when they have type specs and they're just inaccurate. Yeah. Cause and you I just can't use too. dialyzer then. <laughs> I, I think somebody finally fixed all the ones in Timex. Uh, but there was a lot of them that were like subtly incorrect, like missing one of the return types or something like that, or the type had changed in the, during the evolution of the project. And I had to rerun dialyzer to check everything. And, uh, yeah, I think, from a library author standpoint, you know, building in Travis and having a dialyzer check be part of that is a big way to help, um, you know, make sure that your library provides at least solid types uh, rather than just sort of ignoring it as a thing. Because if you're not using it, which seems to be more people than not, um, you end up causing more problems by it not adding or by adding specs and not adding them you know if you add them and you're not using them like you're treating them as a form of documentation which is valid but if you're just using them as a form of documentation not actually running dialyzer then you're you know like you say causing more problems and then other people that actually are using dialyzer can't use it effectively anymore and i'm not sure what the best way is to solve that i'm not sure it's really a solvable problem short of like forking all your dependencies that have bad type specs and fixing them yourself but that's not really a scalable approach either i hope that uh i know there's a few people that are really interested in in bringing better typing to elixir and i'm very much interested to see where that goes in the long term I don't know what do you the know, state is of some of those projects. But. Do you know if there's a place where, where those people coalesce on Slack? Like, is there a channel for types? I don't know if there's like a single channel or on Slack for that. Um, but I do know that there's been some talks given in the last couple of years about that. And I bet if 
one were to approach them about maybe forming a, a channel in Slack, they would be very into that. That's good. Thank I would definitely join into that to see, you know, where that's going. Is it something I very strongly believe in? It's really important, I think, to the scalability of your language. You know, when you start growing into larger and larger, more complex projects, having static analysis supporting that effort is really crucial, I think. You know, one approach in Elixir, at least, is breaking things up into multiple applications to keep those applications small. But it still doesn't really help you when you're having to do refactoring that is non-trivial. So I hope that that becomes more of a thing. Maybe a community evolves out of that. Unfortunately, I don't remember the names of any of those people. But. Yeah, that's what that's what the internet's for. Mm-hmm. We're we're kind of getting toward the end of our scheduled time, so I'm going to push us to picks. Mark, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. Um, just kind of coming back to our discussion on burnout, um, I think one of the things that we might undervalue as developers is the time that we spend away from our computers and yeah. just making a choice to get up, walk away. I know just uh, sometimes when I get up and walk away from my computer, that's when I'm, I, I actually solve problems better. So for sure. Spending time with family, outdoors. Um, you know, I know a lot of developers tend to have other hobbies, um, musical, artistic, uh, whatever. So just, you know, trying to give other expression in your life so that you're not to, to kind of help counterbalance what would otherwise be uh, something that could lead to burnout. So that's my pick. Nice. Eric, what are your picks? I'll just share one. No, I'll share a couple. Uh, On that note, um, I've had a lot of good away from computer time. And most recently, I went on a camping trip. We went down to this place called Pelican Lake in kind of central Utah. But I was sitting on a boat with a fishing pole, not catching much. But all around, I could hear the wilderness, and I could hear, you know, the birds chirping and the, the frogs chirping, I guess, and, and all that stuff. And it was very, very peaceful. Uh, the second one, which is a little bit more, le- a little less peaceful, but probably more fun to a lot of people, is Mario Odyssey on the Switch. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> mm-hmm. That game is so dang good because it takes every, I mean, if you're if you're an old dude like me and Chuck, um, <laughs> Mark, I don't know if you're old or not. You don't look old, so you don't qualify. Hang on, um, let me get my cane. <laughs> right? You know, I, I had the first Nintendo, uh, and they have every piece of nostalgia from the very first game all the way through all the different revisions all wrapped up into this one game. And you talk about just a, a trip in time. Uh, you play this game, and you can relive all these different stages of your life in one game. So Mario Odyssey is very, very well worth it. Yeah, I love my Switch. That game's been great for sure. Yep. Yeah, I want one. Uh, Josh, what are your picks? So I guess continuing the, hey, off-screen stuff, uh, turkeys. I, I, I just got a bunch of baby turkeys, and they're really fun to watch because they're really <laughs> stupid. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. Turkeys are fun. Uh, but also back to back to programming. Uh, Alchemy is an Elm 
to Elixir compiler. So you can write code oh, in Elm great. and use Elm's uh, type system and output gen servers and whatnot. And so that's really pleasant. So I'm, uh, I'm going to pop a link in there. But yeah, that's what yeah, I got. That's awesome. I was not aware of that tool for sure. I got to check that out. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to uh, see if we can get an episode on that one too. I'm not sure exactly what to pick. Um, so on Ruby Rogues, I did talk briefly about uh, getting back into blogging. So I guess I'll talk about that for a minute. So if you go to devchat.tv slash blog, um, I'm going to start blogging there again. And then I also started blogging uh, on my personal blog at charlesmaxwood.com. Um, and that's all the like not code, not devchat.tv podcasts or freelancing or business related stuff. So it's all the other stuff that I'm trying to just uh, figure out. Um, I've, I've kind of been... I found that it's kind of a nice tool for just organizing my thoughts. And so that's kind of what I've been using it for. And so, yeah, uh, definitely check that out. I also just want to, uh, you know, plus one, all the picks on just getting out and getting some time. Um, I'm, I'm seriously trying to figure out how I can do a little bit more of that. And so uh, we'll see how that goes. But yeah, I'm also making some changes on the way that I manage the podcasts. And so, um, you know, taking a little bit of time and figuring out how to make sure that the podcasts are achieving what I would like them to. Anyway, uh, that that's something that I'm working on as well. So I, I guess those are my uh, not so exciting picks. Uh, Paul, what are your picks? For sure, take a look at Chris Keithley's work on uh, Vapor and Raft. Uh, I think those two things are really interesting. Vapor mostly is a means of talking about the configuration debate we were discussing earlier. But Raft is, you know, if you're at all interested in clustering or exploring um, how to do distributed state, he's a great person to talk to about those things, and he's done some great work there. Uh, I would also definitely agree with stepping away from the keyboard. Uh, I've started work doing woodworking as like my you know, non-programming uh, way of getting away from working on computers and getting outside and doing something else. So in my new house, I built a little workshop and um, that's where I've been doing my spare time. Plus at my new house, just being able to get outside and walk around in nature a little bit has been really nice. But yeah, I feel like having uh, a hobby of some kind that gets you outside and away from things lets you think a little bit more and I forget who said it earlier, but you know, this idea of stepping away and then suddenly all those problems that you're working on uh, with your library or application or whatever you happen to be tackling will just sort of come to you. It's weird. It's like magic somehow where, <laughs> you know, you'll be just walking down the road or something and then boom, you're like, wow, okay, I've got it. I've got the solution to this problem. I don't know how that works. It's like your brain just wanders enough in the background to make that those connections that you otherwise can't make. Um, and so if you're at all the type of person like me that can struggle with burnout, if you're working on too many things at once, that's a great way to just kind of alleviate the stress a little bit. Just let your brain do the work without trying to push yourself too hard, you know. Um, other than that... <laughs> I think everybody should go check out the talks from ElixirConf EU and from CodeBeam Stockholm. Uh, if you're interested in some of the up and coming interesting ideas, uh, there's a lot of good content there. Um, 
And I've started to spend some time just watching those videos when I have a you know, spare moment here or there. Maybe during my work day, if I'm reading some documentation or something, just like listening to the discussion a little bit. Uh, it's helped me kind of keep tabs on things without having to spend a whole bunch of time, you know, actively watching hour long talks or something like that, you know, just pick something that's interesting and, and give it a look. Awesome. Uh, one last question for you. If people want to follow you online, um, I'm assuming Twitter, GitHub. I don't know if you have a blog out there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, bitwalker.org is where my blog is hosted. Uh, I don't post there super often. It's usually like one-off things that at some point I'm like, okay, I have enough time. A lot of my blog writing now, though, is on Dockyard's blog. So if you're interested in me writing about things, that's probably where I'd keep an eye on for now. But I'll post those things on Twitter. So that's probably the best way to keep tabs on me. If you're trying to actually get in touch with me, you know, Slack or IRC are the ways to do that. Um, you know, I probably haven't been as responsive as I should be recently on those, but uh, please do reach out. And if you cannot get me on one of those, you know, shoot me an email or, or hit me up on GitHub. Like, I don't mind if people open issues to just ask questions. Like, it's not a big deal to me. So uh, feel free to do that. Yeah, they're easy to close. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Things are coming down the pipe where hopefully GitHub won't be the place where questions are asked. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and my problem with Slack right now is like if people ask me questions on there and I don't get to it right away, uh, after some point in time, like they just disappear. The conversations disappear. I don't know how many questions I've been asked on there, a ton probably, where I try and go back and actually look at them and they're just gone. The messages are gone. Yeah. I can still see that a person sent me a message, but I have no idea what they sent me. Um, so I've gotten a little bit more leery about relying on that as a means of people reaching out to me. IRC is a lot better because at least IRC Cloud, which I'm using as my client, uh, preserves all that in history. So uh, if you are trying to get a hold of me, I would try IRC first, email second, GitHub last, or Twitter. Twitter works also. Uh, I get DMs on there periodically or just uh, somebody asks me on there and, and asks me a question. So any of those work. Makes sense. Well, and some of that's going to move off of GitHub because I'm seeing people um, moving off of GitHub <laughs> because of the Microsoft merger, which I don't know if people are paying attention to or not. But. I Being a .NET developer for 10 years and seeing like how they've really embraced open source uh, pretty heavily in the last few years. I'm not at all really worried about GitHub. Um, maybe it'll change for the worst, who knows, you know, but it's one of those things where it's not going to all happen at once. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, pro the problem I have with it is the whole embrace, extend, extinguish. Once you've made that part of your like strategy yeah. and it's, and it's known, it's pretty hard to trust. Anyway, yeah. which reminded me I was going to pick GitLab. <laughs> yeah i mean I, if people are at all worried about that uh i mean probably should have already been thinking about that you know relying on github is somehow more trustworthy than any of these other large entities seems a little silly to me but somehow the community has really sort of like treated github as like this totally neutral entity uh that they can just trust with all this stuff. Like think about Golang in particular. Uh, 
you know, with how the dependency management has worked there for so long, like GitHub is embedded so heavily there. And I mean, it is in Elixir too, like a lot of Git repositories are referenced directly, but at least the tooling supports you pointing to a GitLab hosted repo or just arbitrarily hosted wherever you want, you know. Um, I feel like if people haven't been at least considering what their backup plan is for that, that it's way too late to suddenly be like, oh, the sky is falling because Microsoft bought GitHub, you know. yeah, probably should have been considering that for a while now if you were at all concerned about that. I don't think anything's going to happen fast with GitHub. Like, you have plenty of time to worry about that problem moving forward if that's something you're really concerned about. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shove this conversation completely off to the side for a minute so we can wrap up. Because sure. this is a whole entirely different conversation. <laughs> yeah. And um, we don't have time to have it in, in a really, you know, meaningful way. But I, I think your thoughts are, you know, pretty much spot on as far as you've got time to figure it out. And, you know, the, the issues that, that are there were there before. It, it's just a matter of, you know, who the actors are. So right. anyway, uh, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, thanks for coming, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure talking with all you guys. All right. Well, yeah, thank uh, you. We'll wind this one down and we will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.